the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Uh, yesterday, Southern Baptist Convention President Ed Litton gave an update on the sex abuse sc- uh, scandal investigation, simply saying this, we need to remain sober. Uh, mm-hmm. He shared a brief update with the SBC Executive Committee on behalf of the Sexual Abuse Task Force and urged the convention to remain very sober and, quote, determined as the v- investigation is still underway. He said the work is progressing. Let me commend the staff of the executive committee for their cooperation on every level. The cooperation among the members, you may have had misgivings. I've heard people say, I haven't been a part of this. I'm new, yet you have cooperated. The process Mm -hmm. is working. It's moving. So neither you or I are SBC people, but we talked about this a lot. There was a lot, a lot, a lot of controversy trying to get this off the ground. Yes. I'm going to take him out his word, Aubrey, and say, hey, it's really good news that that this investigation not only started, they're kind of tearing into what happened, but that for the largest denomination, uh, uh, Protestant denomination in America, that's why we talk about the SBC so much, for the largest uh, Protestant denomination in, in the uh in the nation to be doing this investigation and to be doing, it appears methodically mm-hmm. with high level of cooperation, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully with some answers and some, um, you know, transformation at the end. Aubrey, I read this and I was encouraged again. I'm not part of the convention, but right. to see that it's happening, I think should give us some encouragement. I agree. And I really appreciate in in Ed Litton's prayer, he said, we pray for wisdom, Lord, that we would, I think this is the key, we would not just brace for the impact. So Mm. he's talking about when the the task force releases all of its findings, like we would not just brace for the impact, but we would embrace you to act and do what is right. And Lord, that we would know that we are being scrutinized by you above all. And I appreciate that prayer because it's it's almost like, assuming he's a sincere as we think he is it's almost like okay there's going to be backlash there's going to be scrutiny that no longer is our priority that's what got Mm -hmm. us into trouble in the first place is we were trying to hide from some of that stuff instead lord we have to answer to you and you alone yeah and your children alone let's be honest that have been scrutinized or have been abused and damaged and so i i appreciate what looks like what you said real systematic work at investing this, um, hopefully making some really good recommendations moving forward. And then when the SBC meets again in the summer, prayers that, you know, prayers and hopes that the victims will feel like they've finally been seen and heard. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think we could take a personal kind of application to this too. Like the easier thing to do in these situations is to just look forward. You'll hear people say that. Why can't we just talk about the future? Why can't we just, well, if you don't deal with the past, you're going to repeat these same mistakes in the future. Yes. You're going to condone them. And, and I think, um, you know, Aubrey, we can get lost in just kind of the heaviness of our own personal past or of institutional past. 
But we, in healthy ways, have to go back and unpack where were the mistakes made? Where were our blind spots? Where was their sin? Uh, repent of it. Make the changes necessary. Don't you think uh, that's the only way on personal levels and institutional levels to have health in the future is to deal with the past? I, I, you are 100% right. And we, we talked about a story yesterday of an explorer, a, a black female explorer who's digging down deep in the ocean, trying to find some of the remnants from some of the slave ships. And I think that's sort of that same concept. Mm-hmm. Like if we can't explore the reality of the past, if we're unwilling to do that, then we will not be able to move forward in what God has for us. And so I think that's been part of the problem in what we've seen so much. These church scandals is an unwillingness to just face the reality of what happened. And until we can do that, we won't be able to move forward. But I do believe when we do that, God is going to use that in tremendous ways. Agreed. So let's be in prayer for the Southern Baptist Convention, for these committees as they're kind of trying to make things right and make it a healthier institution going forward. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by the provost of Trinity International University. He's also an associate professor of biblical and pastoral theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. His name is Dr. Wayne Johnson. We're excited to spend some time with Dr. Johnson next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the provost of Trinity International University. He's also an associate professor of biblical and pastoral theology at TEDS at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. His name is Dr. Wayne Johnson. Wayne, how are you doing today? Good. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, here's how we'd love to start. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and more specifically your role at Trinity? Sure, sure. Well, I'm a provost, which probably tells people nothing uh, (laughs) (laughs) because they don't know what a provost is. But I am the chief academic officer for the university. So I work with the academic deans of our schools, which is Trinity College, Trinity Graduate School, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, as you mentioned. And then also we have a law school in California and a campus in Florida. Wow. Yeah, so we're kind of spread out all over the place, uh, which gives me an excuse to go to warm places in the wintertime. <laughs> I was literally just thinking that. I would like to go to the Florida campus <laughs> right. if you ever need a special guest. Here I am, Lord send me, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, Wayne, we know that you have actually a special connection to TEDS because you attended uh, the Divinity School there right. and would love to hear about your experience being a student there. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, maybe I'll back up just a smidge and say that I was heading to medical school. I was uh, graduating cl- uh, college and had gotten into med school, and I was already to do that. Well, my pastor in my church during the time when I was in college invited me to participate in his ministry. And I started doing Bible studies, and I started preaching and other kinds of things. And, you know, I found that all of a sudden there was this kind of spark about how important this was, how I was seeing people change lives through the gospel, how the word was was coming alive in their life. And it was life-changing for me. Mm. Ended up struggling, you know, and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And eventually uh, I felt that the Lord was calling me to go into pastoral ministry. So uh, Ted's was where he had gone, Trinity Divinity School was where he had gone. And so I packed up my bags and headed off to Ted's to do the MDiv there. Uh, my experience at Ted's was wonderful. I think uh, the commitment to scripture and the depth of the study of Scripture. I was in the MDiv program, so I was doing Greek and Hebrew and really diving into the Word. And I think for me, it really prompted a deep, deep love and commitment 
of the power of God's word, not only in my own life, but in the lives of others. Um, another thing that TEDS did for me is that it gave me through uh, the, the breadth of people that were there, and I can talk about that later, but new appreciation of kind of the context of my faith, the global context of my faith, the historical context of my faith. Hmm. And it gave me a, a, a new passion for the centrality of the church in God's mission in the world. Hmm. That, you know, you could get excited about a lot of, a young person could get excited about a lot of different things. But to me, here is where, where, where the real action was happening, where people's lives were being changed. It wasn't easy, but these were, were, were life-changing and culture-changing things that were happening through the gospel. And I think the final thing was that my relationship with God was really deepened through my time at TEDS. Hmm. Uh, so part of that came from a deep appreciation of the word. But also it came just through the great relationships I had uh, there, people from all over the world uh, really committed. They were committed to the Lord and committed to ministry. So it was, as I look back at it, a really excellent foundation for a lifetime of ministry for me, and it was very life-changing. That's great. And now, uh, so I know somebody in your position, you're not just doing this for a job. Like you believe in Trinity, you believe in its mission. So absolutely, just ask it this way. What in your mind, what do you love about Trinity? What sets it apart from other schools and makes it kind of a special place and a special environment for students? Uh, yeah, I think I think first of all, it's the it's the strong commitment to the essentials of the Christian faith. You know, we we have this motto at the school that says it's entrusted with the gospel. It's from First Thessalonians, and uh, we really do take that seriously. We believe that the Christian faith is is central, important. It's worth defending uh, in a in a day and age when many people and institutions are sliding away from the essentials of the faith. I think one of the things that sets Trinity apart is that it's firmly grounded on the Word on the centrality of the gospel uh, and the essentials of the gospel. Mm. At the same time, there is an intentional breadth uh, to TEDS. In other words, when you come to TEDS, you're going to have professors that are reformed. You're going to have professors that are dispensationalists. You're going to have professors that are Calvinists, Arminians, all agreeing on the essentials of the gospel, but very passionately arguing in a good way yes. for the things that they believe. And I think that gives students a real breadth uh, to be able to understand and examine the scriptures for themselves rather than hearing a straw man about what they believe or something mm. like that. They can hear it from the people that actually uh, uh, believe it and then sort these things out for themselves. And I think they're taught to do that, or at least I was taught to, as well, to do it in a way that's that's ironic, that's charitable, that, that seeks to learn and grow from others. Oh, so beautiful. I feel like we all need that right now. Especially today, where we're, we tend to be divided and tend to just kind of go to our camps and start the battle. Yeah, uh, training people to really be gracious uh, is is an important thing. Another uh, thing is that I, TEDS is really a fascinating international and diverse place. We have students mm. from around the world. Um, many times in classes where I teach, uh, Americans are the minorities. In, in oh, wow. uh, there, there are people from all over. And that adds a great richness to the classes, the relationships that you have and grow in uh, at your time here. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, Dr. Johnson, I know that you offer a wide variety of programs at TEDS. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those programs? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, I suppose you could divide them. I think ministry is an umbrella that covers all of our programs in a very uh, distinctive way. But you could probably divide them into two different categories. One is kind of the, the ministry preparation degrees proper, things like the Master of Divinity, uh, which is kind of the core flagship degree for 
uh, training for a lifetime of, of ministry, pastoral ministry, mission ministry, those kinds of things. There is an MA in educational ministry for people who are going to be on staff. There's a MA in mental health counseling for people who are going to be licensed counselors, Christian counselors. So that's one side of the equation for many of the programs that we offer. The other side is really a very rigorous and uh, academic uh scholarship degrees, things like the MA and New Testament and Old Testament, systematic theology, church history. And then uh, really globally impacting around the world, we have PhD uh, programs in theological studies, in educational studies, which focuses on leadership and intercultural studies. And we have, if you look at seminaries and universities around the world, you will find graduates from TEDs uh, oftentimes on their faculties uh, many times leading these institutions as graduates from our programs. I think the programs, uh, you know, as you mentioned previously, uh, there's a rich face-to-face community here, but also we are doing synchronous live courses around the world. In other words, oh, wow. I, I teach a class and I have participants from around the world who are watching me live, asking me questions live. I'm responding to them live. Mm. So it adds a whole new dimension to online. You know, it's not just watching a video. It's actually interacting through the technology that we have these days. It is wild, that technology that you're doing that now. I remember when I was trying to go to grad school, I literally got a big box of tapes to listen to <laughs> and said, do That's your work. Right. Uh, That's right. Dr. Johnson, you guys have an event coming up on Monday, February 28th at 6 p.m. called Explore Open House for Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, who should go to that? What What is happening on that evening? Tell us all about this open house. Yeah, this event is a, an event that we host. It's not, not a, a super formal thing, but it allows people to ask questions of a student panel. We have students that are there. We have our academic dean, David Powell, uh, there to, to speak. And you have, have an opportunity to talk with admissions counselors, of course. But I would say anybody who is seriously thinking that the Lord might be calling them either into ministry in some way or even to these academic roles that I've mentioned, um, it's worth coming. I, I say a lot of people come to seminary simply because they know they want to serve God somehow, but they're not quite sure how. Right. And coming to seminary, even taking classes, allows you to kind of see the landscape. And it also, in prayer, allows the Lord to kind of say, yeah, this way or no, that way. You know, <laughs> gives you kind of a, a direction for discernment. So Explore is a way for us to kind of tell you what we're about, share a little bit of what I've shared with you uh, today, and then be able to really ask some questions, talk to students, talk to our dean, uh, talk to faculty, um, and get a feel for what uh, what TEDS is like. So we certainly want to invite you to come. You don't have to kind of be sure exactly what God wants you to do. It's an exploration. It's a discernment process. Awesome. Again, that is at uh, tiu.edu slash explore TEDS. Again, tiu.edu slash explore TEDS. The Explore Open House is coming up on Monday. That's February 28th at 6 p.m. Dr. Johnson, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for all that you do and spending some time with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a joy. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. So your children are a little bit younger than mine. Yep. My kids are 18, 14, and 12. Yours are, what are the ages of your sons? Mine are 15, 12, and 10. Okay. So I want to talk cell phones. All okay. right? Yep. Uh, so 
Uh, partially we did this because of uh, a good deal that we got on a plan, but all three of my kids have like full cell phones. Like, uh, they can make calls, they can text, do whatever else. Um, and so it's always funny with your oldest, you wait forever. And then with your youngest, you're like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) That's Uh, so true. (laughs) I believe you said only your oldest has a phone like that. Your other two have devices, but it's more for game playing and whatever else. Is that fair? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Uh, are you aware of or do you use an app or uh, called uh, Find My Phone or an app like it where you could see really where your kids' phones are at all times? Oh, yeah, definitely, especially for my teenager. But even Kevin and I use it for each other. We just all, kind of always have Find My – not that we're like checking in on each other, but we we do have Find My Phone on at all times. Okay, so uh, – that is a good answer. My wife and I do as well with our kids. Uh, and I will use it at times going, oh, uh, you know, instead of texting Carrie, hey, where are you? I'll just pick, all right, where is she? That kind of deal. Mm-hmm. But I would say that we have in our family referred to that as the stalking app. <laughs> so- <laughs> yes, that's fair. That's fair. All right. So I'm building up to this question. And, and we've been having this conversation in a very lighthearted, good way with our oldest daughter, who is 18. Is there a point? Even if you're paying for the phone where it is a trust issue or an autonomy issue with your teenager to say, I trust you, I'm going to turn this app off and give you a little bit of autonomy in your life. Or do you fall in the I'm paying for the phone? I am going to know where I'm going to have the ability to know where you and that phone are at all times. How would you wrestle with that? So I don't have an 18 year old. You will soon, though. I will soon. soon. I I tend to err on, look, you're in my house. I'm paying for the phone. You keep it on, period. Like, it's not a it's not a question. When you go off to college, maybe that's different. Definitely when you're paying for your own phone, that's different. But I I tend to be and, – and I don't even know it's because I would want to check it all the time. I just would want to know that I could check it. And I would say it's a combination of trust and safety because yeah. I do sometimes hear parents say – it's not about trust. It's about safety. I trust you. Well, look, I remember myself as a teenager and I was not always trustworthy. So I I think I don't always trust my 15-year-old son to make the best decisions because his his brain hasn't even fully developed yet. You know what I mean? All right, so, so let, you're you're so diving into the conversation that I'm struggling with. Okay. You, you just you just said something really important. So I, you're you're my uh, you're my counselor here. You are, you are my, you're my I'm, I'm sorry. Board. I'm sorry to Brian's children. <laughs> what would how would your life have been different as a teenager or in college or whatever? How would yeah. your life have been different? If 20 years ago, our parents could have known where we Mm -hmm. were at all times, yeah, what would that have done for you? How would you have felt about that? Or how would that have changed (laughs) things for you? I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm just going to say it all. It, I would have gotten busted for sneaking out of the house at night. and meeting. <laughs> I would have gotten busted for meeting with boys that I wasn't allowed to be with. I would have gotten busted for going to concerts I wasn't allowed to go to. Like, it would have changed most of my social life as a teenager, um, in, uh, uh, which would have been a bummer, I'm going to be honest. On the other side, would it have kept me out of some pretty stupid situations? Definitely. So, uh, you know, I, I, I do feel like there are ways that God lets parents know when their kids are in trouble or when mm-hmm. they need to be caught, you know, like God is pretty kind about that. And there were times I got caught and it, there was really no great explanation for it. But uh, yeah, it would have changed quite a bit for me. 
but I was a naughty teenager. So your kids, I don't think are as naughty as I was. Yeah, we'll see. But let's pretend not they're not. My kids are wonderful. Yes. Uh, so here's okay. So let's keep pushing this a little bit. <laughs> uh, do, so we've talked about helicopter parents before. Right. Right. We've talked about this idea of snowplow parents, like people, parents who are really involved. Yeah. What does it look like in the age of technology right now? What does it look like in the age of find my friends or find my phone where I can see where my kids are at all mm-hmm. times? What does it look like to start to give your kids rope uh, and some autonomy and some yeah. uh, some free space without parental oversight while at the same time wanting them to be safe, wanting to know be- – and then I'm going to have a follow-up question for this. See, I'm, I'm bringing you into the world of your kids being a little bit older here. Right, right. How do you think that we as parents should process that? The What does it look like to give my kids the rope that, quite frankly, they're going to need once they're out of my house anyway? So I'm deeply hesitant to answer this be- for anyone else's kids. Like, I answer feel like for you have yeah. to know your kids. And I can't answer for your kids. For mine, I would say as as our oldest is getting 15, autonomy means like we let him and his friends go like, hey, we're going to go hang out at the park. We're going to go to the dollar store. We're going to go to the I mean, there's not malls anymore, but we're going to go hang out here <laughs> for a while. We're like, great. Just can you make sure you're back at this time? And at any point, we have the opportunity if we want to, to check and make sure he is where he is. But I'm not like going to go to the park and follow him around and make sure they're staying out of trouble. Like we're going to give him a longer, hey, he rides his bike to his friend's house. They hang out all day roaming around the neighborhood. Like he's got that long leash. And and I'm comfortable with that. I think he should have more opportunities to ride his bike up to the dollar store with friends and then hang out around there doing whatever they're doing. So it's not a matter that I need to observe or even like micromanage. But at any point, I do want to be able to be like, oh, he's running late. Is everything mm-hmm. okay? Is he safe? What's going on? Let me turn on my find my phone and just make sure he is where he says he's supposed to be. And I think that's, you know, I that's that's how we're doing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I struggle here. This one. What's uh, the, cr- I feel like I want to know why you're asking. What's the, what's the conflict at the from house? It's not a conflict. My 18 year old is asking very legitimate questions about autonomy. Like, Hey, yeah. I'm 18. Yeah. Can I do this? Hey, I'm 18. Yeah. All very good stuff. None of it is bad. Uh, but also there, it, you turn off that, find my phone. It's off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. You can't well, turn you, it back you, on. You've lost that. And I put myself in her shoes it would have driven me up a wall at the age of 18 if my parents could have known where I was yeah, at all times. Yeah. And, but yet they didn't have that. And that brings me to one more thing. Uh, I think find my phone. I'm starting to wonder if it's also bad for me. To, oh, the ability interesting. To, okay. The okay. ability to always know where my 18-year-old is or even the youngers are a little different. But, you yeah. know, when your kid is 16, 17 – I actually wonder, I've started to wonder if it's bad for me to be able to know at all times mm. where they are and check what are they mm. doing there? Why exactly? Uh, they didn't say they were necessary. And it all ends up being uh, feeling like private detective. I yeah. don't trust you stuff. Yeah. So anyway, I'm struggling with that personally. And I just think we're having my daughter goes to college next year. We're going to keep this on when she's at college. I'm right. Still, no, you know, probably not in college, but. When she's we'll still see. under your roof, I, I I don't know. But if it's not good for you, I think that's a fair question to be asking. If it's making you too stressed or obsessed or something, that's that's definitely worth 
it's really just something I want to I want to wrestle with on a yeah. radio show, you know, just out <laughs> there in the open. What do, I would love to hear from other people. What does uh, autonomy look like? A little bit of rope. I guess I would use the word rope versus safety. I'm paying for the phone. This other stuff. Uh, and and we are, we live in a whole new generation, right? Yeah, Our do. parents didn't have this ability, right? And sometimes I wonder if that was better <laughs> for everybody involved. Maybe. Uh, and uh, yeah, let's keep having this conversation. All right. See, you're making me a better parent. I appreciate it. I appreciate. Uh, Thank you, Brian. That's what I'm it. here to do is to help you parent. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Coming up next, uh, a sad story from the world of America's Got Talent. One of their contestants, uh, Nightbird, she she passed away. She, if you know the show, a lot of the show with her was centered around her uh, struggle with cancer. And now she has passed away. And there's a lot of stories coming out, some of her journey. Uh, and just what does it look like to have hope in the midst of such a struggle. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're always so glad that you're with us. Brian, there was some pretty devastating news in evangelical America, and and really not just in evangelical America, but for fans of America's Got Talent, because um, one of the performers, Jane Marchewski, who used the stage name Nightbird, lost her battle to cancer. She was 31 years old. And, uh, you know, she was on the show and people were floored by her gift and her Mm -hmm. light and her music. I thought in her honor, we would play a a little clip of one of her songs that she actually won the golden buzzer for and then talk a little bit about her her life and her legacy. So let's go ahead and listen to that. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost and it's all right. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. If you're lost, we're all a little lost and it's all right. It's all right to be lost sometimes. Wow, Brian. I mean, hearing that even now, it just kind of brings me to tears, especially knowing that she died at at age 31. And even then, I think she was already battling cancer. She had multiple experiences of cancer and knew all along that she had a terminal cancer diagnosis. Um, And I do believe she ended up withdrawing from America's Got Talent because her health was declining. Mm. Um, But, you know, you even talked about how she impacted you with something that she wrote on her own blog called God is on the Bathroom Floor. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. And I wish we could read the whole thing, but it is it is just really raw. She this was back in March of 2021. She wrote this so about a year, a little less than a year ago. Uh, and so let me just read an excerpt of it because, uh, the, the title God on the bathroom floor, uh, she gets at here. He, she says, I've had cancer three times now and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say, I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. Mm-hmm. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, apologies, gifts, questions, demands. 
Sometimes I use my key under the mat to Mm. let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door uh, for me, uh, opens the door to me himself. And she's just going to go on and Mm. on about just her arguments and view of God, but that she has met God, you know, this imagery that Mm. she's on the bathroom floor sick all the time. Yeah. And that she's really met God there. Mm. Uh, she ends the blog by saying, if you can't see God, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Oh, I, I just think there's imagery here mm. that uh, it's so raw, Aubrey, because yeah. to have cancer three times by the time you're 30, that's nothing I could ever understand. No, and now she, yeah. is, she has died from it. To, to know the pain and the sickness and the despair and the anger that must come with this and to just honestly go – I didn't just go, oh, God, whatever you give me, right? But it's like I've wrestled with God. I've yelled at God. I've held on to God. I've relied on God. And God has been there every step of the way. I found this to be, I guess, just the rawness of it. And, yeah. and there's a there's an added depth to it now that you know that she has lost her battle with cancer. But yeah, I think we all, uh, on lesser degrees or sometimes harder degrees than this, have to wrestle with where is God when life doesn't feel fair. And so this writing, I I just was impacted by reading what she wrote here. Yeah. And I I think even similarly, like hearing the lyrics of her song, it's it's okay to be lost sometimes. I I think hearing that anyone needs to hear that message, but then to hear it from someone who's actually in the middle of a uh, literally facing death, um, there's something so deeply prophetic about it that it, you, you know, it almost feels like a holy sacred moment. Even the judges of America's Got Talent realize that. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting, too, as we think about her life that, she, you know, she grew up in a in a Christian home. She went to Liberty. So she she grew up in in um in a primarily Christian world, shared mm-hmm. a lot about her Christian faith, but it feels so authentic because she does kind of talk about the brutality of it all, especially in that article or that blog post that you just talked about, um, the brutality of it all, but still clinging to her faith. And even yesterday, Ann Voskamp uh, was on social media sharing all about her, what a what a light she was to so many people. And what I think is fascinating is that this isn't when we I think when we talk about being a light for Christ, we're not picturing this. We're not picturing Mm. God on the bathroom floor. We're not picturing about saying it's okay to feel lost sometimes while we're dying of cancer. When we when we kind of you be a light for Christ, we're talking about like sharing the gospel and doing good things. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it feels very sort of victorious. But what I see happening here is in her life, she shared Jesus and was such a light in a really, like really dark place. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, uh, you know, there's not much to say except to just like honor her life and recognize that for any of us who are in deep pain or walking with someone who is in deep pain, it's okay to say that. And that doesn't diminish your witness for Jesus, but might actually enhance it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, the depth of her pain in the midst of writing this uh, is what really kind of attracts us to it, to go, what does it look like to grow a faith like that, to have a faith like that? She even goes on to say, uh, call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me Mm. the one who God whispers his secrets to. 
I'm the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on the days when I'm not sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't really explain it, but God is in there. Even now, I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. If you can't see him look lower, God is on the bathroom floor. And Aubrey, I think Mm. for those of us who aren't going through things in life, like life is pretty good. Yeah. I think we do miss this. And the question becomes, how do we have this sort of depth of relationship with God apart from suffering? Because the Bible talks about suffering being the kind of gateway uh, to intimacy with God. I really do think this is something in the Western church where we value convenience and we value prosperity, really have to wrestle with her going like, I don't want this cancer. Uh, I I want to be healed, but mm-hmm. I know God so deeply because of it is yeah. is really the paradox of the Bible. Yeah, you, Brian. I mean, you have just hit the nail on the head. It is the it is the paradox of the Bible. It's the paradox of the Christian faith that somehow, as we become less, He becomes more. As we suffer, we join in Jesus's own suffering on the mm-hmm. cross. That. Somehow God is, God has like especially said he's near to those who suffer and that somehow in suffering, he's doing something remarkable and beautiful. And all of those things are so difficult to grapple with because there's such a paradox, right? Mm-hmm. And yet we, we see in, uh, Nightbird's example here that there is really something sacred and beautiful that comes in darkness when we cling to Jesus and when we're authentic about how difficult that clinging is. I I just think you're right. This is a word for the church Mm -hmm. in, in this day and age who's so afraid to embrace or talk about suffering, but perhaps we need a less anemic theology of suffering. And here's a woman's example of what that could look like while remaining very, very faithful to Jesus. So anyway, mm-hmm. we, we just wanted to spend some time honoring her and the light that she was for so, so many people. Prayers and thoughts obviously go out to her family and her friends. Well, when we return, we're joined by Andy Carr from an amazing organization called Feed My Starving Children. We're going to hear more about their mission and some opportunities for you. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined by Andy Carr. Andy is the Vice President of Development and Marketing for Feed My Starving Children. He's also responsible for all aspects of fundraising, marketing for the organization. He joined Feed My Starving Children in 2013 after volunteering and supporting uh, the work there. We are so excited to hear more about Feed My Starving Children and Andy's ministry. So, Andy, thanks so much for being here with us today. Hey, Aubrey and Brian, thank you for having me. Uh, Just thrilled to always talk about uh, the work that Feed My Starving Children is doing uh, in, in the Chicagoland area as well as all over the world. And Andy, we would actually just love to hear that. Tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about the mission of Feed My Starving Children. Yeah, well, um, so I, uh, I'm i Minnesota-based, uh, but have spent a lot of time in Chicago over my lifetime, and uh, I'm a Midwestern guy, um, but I've been around the organization as a volunteer and donor since 2005, and uh, as we were talking a little bit before coming on air, 
you know, both of you have been in and packed those meals with mm-hmm. us. And and the reason Feed My Starving Children exists is because, unfortunately, uh, there is uh, immense hunger in the world. And to the point that uh, in places uh, outside of the U.S., that over 6,200 children starve to death every single day. That's not an annual number. That's a daily number. And, and the thing is, is that that is the world's greatest solvable problem because it's not like we're seeking a cure for hunger. We have the cure. It's food. And uh, as a matter of fact, Feed My Starving Children uh, has the food that is, is, is desperately needed. It's vitamins, vegetables, soy, and rice, which uh, you're aware as you've come and put those hairnets on and come to our sites. We've got three of them in Chicago, uh, in Aurora, Schaumburg, and Libertyville, where volunteers come for two hours at a time. They go to our, our website, fmsc.org, and sign up to volunteer and come put those meals together. And then we distribute those to over 70 countries around the world. And uh, and this year, uh, we will we will distribute over 390 million meals across the globe. So we're feeding over a million people every single day a nutritious meal, specifically targeted in those areas that have the greatest needs and are often the most forgotten. Uh, as Andy mentioned, uh, both Aubrey and I are pastors, and I know our church, we've gone to Feed My Starving Children. We've taken youth ministries. There. It is such an awesome kind of opportunity for your church as well. So go to fmsc.org. And Andy, I'd like to start there. Help the maybe a pastor's out there listening or a coach of a team or something. Uh, why, uh, why would you encourage them to take the time to go do it? What does it do? For, I would ask it this way for those who go and actually do the serving. Well, Brian, isn't that the incredible part of the God that we serve, that God doesn't just see the need as far as the physical of those kids that need the food, but he sees it greater than, much greater than that opportunity. We say we feed God's children hungry in body and spirit, and the coming together, whether you're a church and you're doing this to uh, encourage and activate people in their in their ability to serve, and, and families that say, I, I want to do something good, where can I go? This is a place that you can come if you're five years older, if you're 105 years old, if there's special needs, if there's athletics. And the great thing uh, that that comes together to build teams and to just build people up in their opportunity to serve people, as Matthew 25 says, you know, Jesus says, when did you see me? <laughs> and uh, and when did I see you, Lord? And he's like, well, when I was hungry. And so it's, it's a hands-on, tangible way that people can come together. And we have schools and businesses and churches and, and, and that, you know, from a pastoral standpoint, standpoint, the idea to come around and, and do something as a community that truly makes an impact across the world is uh, something that's special. Yeah, that's that's so special. And like Brian said, having been a part of even just, you know, volunteering for a few hours, you can see how special it is. Okay, Andy, this is actually really exciting. And part of the reason that you're here right now, Feed My Starving Children has some career opportunities available, which is obviously an incredible opportunity for people who want a job that actually has meaning and impact. So can you talk about some of the jobs that are available right now and how people can find out more? Yeah, Aubrey, uh, you know, you can always go to fmsc.org and click on and look uh, under our about section in our careers and you'll see the variety of jobs that are open. We have we have sites there, as I mentioned, in the Chicagoland area in Minneapolis. Uh, we've got three sites here. We've got one in Phoenix, which sounds kind of good right now. I don't know about you guys there in Chicago. <laughs> it's uh, it, it, it's minus one here in Minneapolis right now uh, and, and also in the, in the Dallas area. Um, and then we do another thing that we call mobile 
mobile packing where we take the show on the road and we go to we, we go to, to businesses schools and churches you know all across the the United States and uh, and fly people in to host events um, and so we did uh, we'll do over 200 of those events this year all wow. across all across the United States so the opportunities are for those people who are looking for something with purpose and something that that you can do and and it can be as a, a volunteer program facilitator we call uh, where you get to kind of lead the charge and you get to share the stories of what FMSC does you get to help uh, facilitate bringing all those incredible volunteers and interacting with people and with the joy and love of Christ as you welcome people in to do this and you'll get to experience because uh, all kinds of people you don't have to be a Christian to come and pack with us you don't have to be a Christian to get the food so you get a variety of, uh, of people who come in to support Feed My Starving Children. We also have careers in, in different office environment jobs whether it's in our human resources area or in our logistics teams or our fundraising development teams. We'll always uh, have different opportunities, kind of like any other business that has a cycle of people. But I've noticed over these last two years in particular that as this whole COVID thing has hit, we've got a lot of people who are saying, God, what is it that you have that maybe is a little more uh, for me? Whether it's people that are looking for that bonus career uh, that maybe have uh, have been a part of corporate America. That's where I was. Uh, I was a corporate America guy. Uh, and and God just led me here. And I would just say, people, perfectly consider what where's God using the gifts and talents that you have. And we have full and part-time positions. So uh, I would just encourage people, check us out and see if something might be the right fit for you. That's awesome. Again, you can go to fmsc.org slash careers and check out all those opportunities. Uh, so, Andy, as I said, I've gone to Feed My Starving Children probably a half dozen times and always love doing it. My kids have gone with me. It's always a great thing. Uh, help people out there understand how does the food get to where it's going? How long does it take? How do you guys decide where it goes? Help us understand what happens after we pack. Well, we could talk a long time, so I'll try and be as abbreviated as possible mm. for uh, these airwaves. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, uh, we, ask people to come and participate, uh, packing the food and funding the food, uh, because we don't get this stuff just given to us. We have to raise all the money, uh, to be able to do that. You can, a meal is less than a quarter and, uh, you can feed a kid for a year for $88. So wow. people have gone before you and have helped donate so we can acquire those ingredients. You guys put them together. We put them over a pallet. We always pray over the food every single time. I think you'll probably recall that from being around. And then we have partners who, we come alongside for the long haul. We're a little different than maybe some other nonprofit organizations. We actually make the promise to people before we ever have the funds raised or the meals produced. We step out in faith. And so we tell them for the next year, this is how much you're going to get. They make a request to us. We evaluate it. We've got a, co a committee that's been doing this for a long time. Some uh, business leaders and other faith leaders that uh, that vet those people to make sure they're capable of, of bringing in a truckload a 40-foot shipping container, that they're the right kind of organization to partner with, and that they're really doing what they say they're going to do with this food. So on average, you know, I would say it takes anywhere from, from four weeks to three months to get to the locations that this food may be going, because 70 countries, you know, coming from Chicago, if it's going to Haiti, it might get there quicker than if it's going to Mozambique, yeah. wow. um, you know, so it really depends. But I can tell you, uh, pay attention to our social media channels, because we often 
or posting uh, when food arrives. Um, and, and you may even get an email notice that the food that you help pack has shipped. So uh, it's a really cool process and God's hand is all over it. Because get this, in our history, we've produced over two and a half billion meals. Wow. And over 99.8% of those meals have reached the destination. And, and this is God's hand. God's hand is all over that, getting that food to the places that I've personally experienced that you're like, how did this happen? Yeah. Only, only God. Mm. Oh, Andy, that is so awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. Andy Carr is the Vice President of Development and Marketing for Feed My Starving Children. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, it's been a blessing. God bless you guys. Thank you, everybody. Uh, and we covet your prayers. Com- continue to pray that God would allow us to reach those uh, those kids all over the world with the love of Jesus and a, a warm bowl of food. So thank you. Amen. You can learn more about Feed My Starving Children and donate at fmsc.org. And be sure to check out those career opportunities that Andy mentioned at fmsc.org slash careers. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're with us today. I was over at religionnews.com and there was a really fascinating opinion piece by Blake Chastain who says that evangelicals must stop consulting themselves for guidance. Here's Mm. what it says. The United States cannot afford to give evangelicalism the benefit of the doubt again, and evangelicals cannot afford to just talk among themselves any longer. And um, it, it very interesting concept because... Uh, you know, there's a couple things at stake here. One, the reputation of evangelicals at large seems to really be being destroyed. And, uh, you know, when looked at by the outside world, again, here, this this author is saying we can't we don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. Mm. But then two, uh, calling for us to stop siloing ourselves and to learn from others. This author actually says evangelicals have siloed themselves for far too long. Not so much anti-institutional as alt-institutional. They rebuked the Federal Council of Churches by starting the National Association of Evangelicals. They founded their own Bible colleges, radio stations, and publishing houses. They cut themselves off from ecumenism. So uh, uh, ecumenism is like from the global church, essentially, or from global voices. So, um, Brian, I, I do think there's something really like I agree and I disagree with this and I'm trying, I think there's truth in, yeah, we probably have ruined our own reputation. Right. Um, Especially for people who were so pro Trump that became kind of a, a not good look for a lot of Christian, at least in Mm. the eyes of the world. And there were a lot of well-known evangelical figures you and I have had on the show. You and I really appreciate like Russell Moore, like Tim Keller, like, Karen Swallow Pryor, who are still evangelical, but really weren't like pro-Trump evangelicals. And so in one sense, what we're finding is this, I don't, I don't know, there, there's a evangelicalism that has always existed that people seem to have a problem with. There's evangelicals that are sort of separating themselves, but still evangelical. And then there's like the deconstructionists or the ex-evangelicals. And somewhere along that spectrum is where we need to be, Brian. And I don't know if I have an answer, but I I think generally 
what do you think? Do you think it's true that we no longer deserve the benefit of the doubt from the United States of America? I, I don't think so. I, yeah. I think it's first of all, I think there's this uh, this painting with a broad brush. All evangelicals are this. Right. And mm. so that's where all evangelicals vote this way. Yeah, or they do church this way. And that's one of the points of of starting quote unquote evangelicalism was to have a bit of a bigger tent, right? Like these are the things that we're going to hold on to. These are the non-negotiables. And then we're going to look differently in some of the non, uh, in some of the negotiables, right? Some of the non-essentials. I think, Aubrey, the answer to your question, I think the problem right now is that within evangelicalism, uh, there's too much tribalism, right? Like, if evangelicalism was the entire pie, that's being cut up and people with their small slice are only talking to the people with their own slice. Yeah. And they're throwing bombs at everybody else. I'll just be really blunt. I don't have a lot of uh, desire to hear from people outside of evangelicalism saying this is what you need to be mm. because – uh, they don't, they may not hold the same faith. They may not hold the same values. They may not hold the same. And once we start going, you know, what do, uh, what, what does this group say we should be? And what does this group, like, we don't do this to other things, right? That's like, so true. Like the Democratic Party shouldn't be going, you know what we need to think about? We need to think about who exactly do the Republicans want us to be? Mm. Or the Catholic Church is not thought to be, so true. hey, you know what? The Catholic Church needs to go to the atheists and go, what do you think? Uh, but instead, because evangelicalism is kind of like it's not like it's set in stone. Yeah. You've got this leader. Yeah. You've got these are exactly what we believe, whatever. It, it becomes a little more mushy and people are like, well, then you should be this. You should be this. I quite frankly, Aubrey, don't think that ex-evangelicals should give us much voice. Like I don't really care yeah. to hear what they have to say. Yeah. Uh, I want to understand. I want to do this. But they've said I want to be separate from this. Yeah. Then let them be separate, right? And so I think for evangelicalism, for me, it's going, okay, let's have a conversation amongst those underneath this broad tent. The tent's broad enough as is. Uh, let's have a tent and let's go, what are the important things? What are not? Because again, I think we use this term and when we do, we use it for so many different things uh, that it can become really muddled. So I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful for me on the spectrum. I want to hear from people who think differently than me, but are underneath the tent, right? We still yeah, hold those same, yeah. we hold to the same non-negotiables and I'd like to debate the negotiables. I'd like to debate politics and how we are, you know, evangelism, whatever else it might be. Uh, people outside the tent, I want to love and I want to listen to, I want to talk to, but mm -hmm. I don't want them forming Yes. Uh, how we should be going forward. Hopefully yeah. that's helpful. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, Brian. It, it does remind me, you know, we just interviewed Dr. Wayne Johnson of TEDS. And one of the things that he talked about in describing TEDS was that, you know, they they agree uh, on the fundamentals of faith, but you've got professors in all kinds of mm -hmm. different camps mm -hmm. and they do that very intentionally so that you can learn to, you know, argue and debate and have conflict and be sharpened. But again, under that umbrella of like, here are some basics that we all agree to. And, you know, once once you're outside of that, like you just said, hey, let's be friends. Let's listen. Yeah. Let's learn from yeah. each other. But you're not 
I, I'm not going to go to you for expertise when it comes to my faith. I'm not going to go to you when it comes to expertise in like translating the way I should live in Jesus. And I think that's okay. Like you said, we don't do that or expect that from other, you know, organizations or faiths or what have you. So why would we expect that from evangelicalism? Interesting to note, Blake Chastain, who wrote this article, is also the guy who began the hashtag exvangelical. So mm. you definitely see, you know, his perspective and where he's coming from. A question that I do have, and I think as pastors, it's, it's worth us asking, Brian, when we we hear something like this, people reacting against evangelicalism, um, is it because they've been hurt by the church? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, so underneath underneath, I guess, some of the criticism perhaps is real criticism. Don't get me wrong. Like some of it is incredibly valid, but there's pain there. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in some senses, I, you know, I do we need to get to the bottom of that pain as ministry leaders, as friends, as uh, just fellow brothers and sisters right. in Christ in order to build better bridges? Like maybe it's not about are you an evangelical or an ex-evangelical, but look, you've got church pain. I still represent the church to you. How can we come together and like find some reconciliation and some healing for both of us um, and move together with better mutuality rather than us versus them? It feels like this is going to be a conversation continuing to just go forward with different sides. Yeah, I think for me, it's okay. We've got to define what are the non-negotiables, right? Mm, And again, there's no hope of evangelicalism. That's what makes this really difficult. We need to decide what are the non-negotiables. And then I want to, I want to hash those things out with people who are bought into those non-negotiables. Yeah, that's it. I don't, I don't want to, I want to love and care. Don't get me wrong. I want to be in their lives. I want to be love, yes. uh, uh, showing love to my neighbor. I want to be in the lives of those who don't believe those non-negotiables, but I don't want them going, this is how the church should be. This is how you, yeah. I, I, that's not. They're not a part of the church. And yes. so why would we do that? I want to separate those two and go, okay, here's how I treat this. But then within evangelicalism, let's, what does it look like to be brothers and sisters who are working out difficult things, but in the end, still living as brothers and sisters, still loving each other as brothers and sisters? I'm not sure we're doing that well right now. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I'm pretty confident we're not. Right. Uh, but it's still a conversation that's worth pushing into. Yep, yep. I think it is a conversation worth pushing into and 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 I there's you know, there is some truth to the statement about us siloing ourselves and maybe there are some places where we can learn from others, but I still think you're right that we can uphold what we believe to be true and the people that we believe are following the truth at, um and not and not have to feel bad about that, mm-hmm. not have to apologize mm-hmm. for that. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow right here from four to six PM. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.